You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. What an incredibly powerful truth, right? That we just sang. We do not have to be slaves to fear. And that's what Jesus does. He completely changes our lives. He gives us life. He gives us hope. He gives us joy. And if you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, then you probably didn't know that we have started into a new series in the letter to the Philippians. And we've entitled this Enduring Joy because out of all the letters that we have that Paul wrote, this one is the one that talks the most about this reality, this experience of joy that's only found in knowing and living for Jesus Christ. And so as promised the last couple of weeks, today we're going to show you really an overview of the book. We kind of dove right into the book, dove into the first chapter here this last week, but now we're going to back up just to start our time today. And we're going to show you this overview of, the, of Philippians from the Bible Project. And many of you are familiar with this. We've opened, I think, every series in the last couple of years with one of these videos because they do such a great job of concisely really introducing and explaining the entire book. So we're going to show this to you. So sit back, grab some popcorn, watch this, and then we'll continue on in our study of this first chapter. But the letter of Paul to the Philippians. Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there, Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, 
that actually wouldn't be so bad because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. Paul then turns to the Philippians, and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up this same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism. But their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution. But they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. Which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. It's rich with echoes of Old Testament text, specifically the story of Adam and his rebellion in Genesis 1-3, through and the poems about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. This poem is worth committing to memory. It is a beautifully condensed version of the gospel story. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He became a human. He became a servant to all. And even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. But through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the king of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel as Lord. Paul's point here is very clear. In the crucified and risen Jesus, we discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is, and it does more. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. And so that's why Paul immediately goes on to tell two stories, first about Timothy, then about Epaphroditus, because they are both examples of people living out Jesus' story. So Timothy's like Jesus because he's constantly concerned for the well-being of other people more than his own. And Epaphroditus, who the Philippians sent with their gift, he ended up risking his life to serve Paul in prison. He got so sick he almost died trying to help Paul. But God had mercy on him and Paul by sparing him the loss of a friend. Paul's point here is that these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of the story of Jesus and they are worthy of imitation. 
Paul then turns to his own story as an example. So those Christians who had been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians, remember his letter to the Galatians, these people are still stirring up trouble for Paul, and they keep reminding him of his own past. When he used to persecute Jesus' followers, when he tried to show his right standing before God by his zealous obedience to the laws of the Torah. But like Jesus, Paul has given up all of that status and privilege. He now regards all of it as filth. And the word he uses is actually much less polite. He's given it all up to become a servant, like Jesus, to participate in his suffering and sacrificial love. And he does all of it in the hope that Jesus' love will carry him through death and out the other side into resurrection. So Paul says that for followers of Jesus, their true citizenship is in heaven, which for Paul does not mean that we should all hope to get away from earth and go to heaven one day. Rather, heaven is the transcendent place where Jesus reigns as king. And he says we're eagerly awaiting our royal savior to come from there and return here to bring his kingdom of healing justice and transforming love to bring about a new creation. Paul then challenges the Philippians to keep living out the Jesus story. He first addresses two prominent women leaders in the church who worked alongside Paul, and they're in some kind of conflict. And so Paul pleads with them to follow Jesus' example of humility, to reconcile and become unified. Paul then urges the Philippians not to give in to fear, but despite their persecution, to vent all of their emotion and their needs to God, who will give them peace. And that peace, Paul says, it comes by focusing your thoughts on what is good and true and lovely. There's always something that you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that all of life is a gift and can choose to see beauty and grace in any life circumstance. Which leads Paul to his conclusion. He again thanks the Philippians for their sacrificial gift, and he wants them to know that his imprisonments, that his times of poverty, that these are not true hardships for him. They've actually become his greatest teachers, showing him that no matter his circumstances, he has learned the secret of contentment, its simple dependence on the one who strengthens him. Paul has come to see his own suffering as a participation in the story of Jesus. The letter to the Philippians gives us a unique window into Paul's own heart and mind. He saw his entire life as a reenactment of the story of Jesus. And you can sense in this letter his close connection to Jesus, his awareness that Jesus' love and presence is closer than his own skin. And that's what gave him hope and humility in his darkest hours. And so Paul shows us that knowing Jesus is always a deeply personal transforming encounter. That's the kind of Jesus that Paul invites others to follow. And that's what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. And we're done. Right? There it is. There's the overview to Philippians. You can go home as soon as you can repeat all of that. Right? Talk about getting a drink of water through a fire hose. Right? But This summer and this fall, we're going to be journeying our way through Philippians, so we will come back and revisit all those sections and those truths that we just looked at. But that's how the letter fits together. And if you were with us last week, we looked at the reality of how the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and God redeeming this broken world to what he always intended it to be, changes us. And we looked at just in the opening, really, sentences of this letter 
in Paul's life, how the gospel makes us humble, but it also makes us happy, makes us prayerful and thankful, motivated and maturing partners and participants in God's redemptive work of this world. And now we're going to shift gears as we come to really the the middle part of this first chapter here in the end, and we're going to look at what did Paul pray for the Philippians. This is a profoundly powerful prayer because it's really a prayer of maturity. And it is a prayer to pray for yourself as well as a prayer to pray for others. And we're going to look at the dynamics of this prayer together. So I want to back up and give you the context for this prayer and then we'll look at the prayer itself. So if you have a Bible, open, turn on your phone, open it up on your, on your hard copy Bible or your notebook or whatever you have and I'm going to put it up on the screen and we'll read it here. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel all of you share in God's grace with me God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now watch what he prays for them. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Man, you talk about a powerful powerful prayer. So let's look at what's there. He prays that they would grow in love, which is what we would probably expect in many ways, right? I mean, according to to John chapter 13, what did Jesus say? They will know we are Christians by our love, right? And there's a song that goes with that, probably several. But that is a calling card for us as Jesus followers, That's our side of the street. We should be the most loving people there are. So who is he calling us to love? Who is he calling the Philippians to love in this letter? It doesn't say. (laughs) Do you see it? Or do you not see it? Right? That's probably the better question. It's not there. And scholars are kind of divided on this. And it's not a huge debate, but, but some are suggesting that because of the context, the letter was written to the Philippians, he's just talking about the Philippians. Hey, love fellow Jesus followers. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's very reasonable, and I'm sure that's very true, but there are a number of scholars, and I I think I would fall more into this camp, who believe he very deliberately didn't specify who to love because according to Jesus, who is our neighbor and who are we to love? Everybody. You ever truly taken some time to unpack that? And to think about the implications of that. This means we love the people who are easy to love. Right? Yeah, we do. And there are a lot of people who are easy to love. There are a lot of people who are not easy to love. What about them? For instance, what about the people who tend to get overlooked? The people who other people don't tend to notice or take note of or really... To love. The Bible calls them the least of these. We're called to love them. 
What about those people who are difficult to love? Those people who test your patience, drive you crazy? Them too? Let's raise the bar a little higher because Jesus did, and this was the example and the answer to the question of who is my neighbor. We're called to love our enemies, those who have it out for us. Those who don't like us, those who make life difficult for us, yes, even those who persecute us, who go out of their way to malign us. That's who we are to love. I think that's who Paul had in mind, not just fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus. How are we going to do that? You can't. On your own, you cannot love people with that kind of love. Only through Jesus Christ can you love someone like that. And just to reset our perspective about that, does anybody deserve God's love? Do you, do I deserve God's love? Man, God is sure lucky to have me on his team. Where would he be without me? Uh, Yeah, not so much. Right? Don't we all start out in the same place? Aren't we all broken and sinful and separated from God? And yet, what does God's word repeatedly remind us? And this is so important practically for us to understand because it is the reality of the gospel. And that is, if you want to live out the gospel, if you want to love other people, then you have to remember, I have to remember, God first loved me. And I didn't deserve it. That's why I love other people who don't deserve it. Because I was loved when I didn't deserve it. Look what, look what Romans says here. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Our brokenness attracts God's grace. None of us deserve God's love. So how can God ask us to love people who don't deserve his love? Because you didn't, and I didn't, yet he still loved us. Living out the gospel is always a response to what God has done for us. Why do you love other people? Because God first loved you. There it is. So this wonderful prayer for maturity is about love. Growing in loving other people. And yet what's so important for us to understand is that God's love never compromises the truth. And neither should ours. Because in our culture, we're often told that when we are speaking the truth in love, that we're being intolerant, that we're, we're not being very kind, we're being judgmental, we're being condemning. Yet in Scripture, God's love and His truth are virtually synonymous. They never stand in opposition to one another. Jesus always loved people truthfully. He never compromised either one. And man, is that ever difficult? And that's why wisdom is required. And that's what Paul prays in this prayer. Is a profound call to wisdom. Let's let's take that apart a little bit. Knowledge This is more than just facts and figures knowledge. This is a knowledge really that's sourced in relationship. This is talking about knowing God, knowing his will, knowing his ways, knowing his word. 
that's a key piece of, of wise living because the reality is you can't really live God's truth if you don't know it. Or to put that another way, you can't live wisely if you don't know God's word. We always have to grit our lives, filter our lives, ask ourselves, what is the loving thing to do in this situation through God's word? We have to know his word and constantly be going back to his word. Um, this, this week I've been repairing my fence. And of course I waited for the hottest week of the summer to do that. Probably not my best decision. But I've got two posts that they just have uh, rotted. And so I've had to take down these sections in order to replace these posts. These posts are in hard pan and concrete and roots and rock. And it's taken three and a half, four hours of pretty continuous work to dig out each one. And so therefore, I've been outside most of the day, these last handful of days. And I don't know if this is true in your neighborhood or not, but in my neighborhood, during wintertime, Okay, it's Oregon, let's be honest. The eight months that it rains around here, everybody drives in, their garage door goes down, and I don't see them. I mean, we just really don't, even though Jamie and I are out almost every day running, we don't see a lot of our neighbors until the sun comes out. And then all of a sudden, there really are people who live in those houses. And people come out, they mow their lawns, they weed, they go for walks. And what I've noticed in the last couple of days that I've been outside, right there on the sidewalk, replacing you know, these posts, is all the neighbors are out. And they all want to talk which is great. It's great for relationship. It's not great for productivity, but it's wonderful for relationship. And and I'm not complaining. I wouldn't trade it. It's wonderful to connect with my neighbors. And I have this one neighbor who's talked to me a couple times now the last couple days, and I haven't seen her in quite a while. And she knows and loves the Lord. And she came over and we were talking and we were talking about some, some questions that some of her adult kids have asked who were not walking with the Lord and just kind of walking through that together. And we were talking about the return of Jesus. And in the very passage we're looking at, within the space of five verses, Paul twice talks about the return of Jesus, the day of Christ. This is a reality that runs from Genesis to Revelation, okay? And we're talking together, and we're talking about Revelation, and we're talking about the reality that, again, as Philippians 4 suggests to us that we just we're reminded from the video that, or reminds us rather, that God is going to bring heaven on earth. The new heavens, the new Jerusalem, the new earth, everything's going to be restored and redeemed to the way God always intended to it. We will live eternity here on earth the way God always intended it to happen. Read Revelation 21 and 22 for starters. Right? That really is going to happen when Jesus comes back, the day of the Lord. And so we're talking about this, and we're talking about that reality. And she says, well, you know, Revelation is allegory, and you have to read it that way. And I about had a coronary on the spot and said, are you serious? Okay, please do not take my word for this. Go home, open your Bible to Revelation 21 and 22, and you read that. And you read and look from Genesis to Revelation, the return of Jesus that's non-negotiable. That is going to happen. That is a reality. You can take that to the bank. That is not an allegory. That is not a fable. That is not a story. It is going to happen. So therefore, we have hope. This is not all there, all there is. You can't live the word of God unless you know the word of God. And we constantly need to be going back to the word of God to know how to live our lives. 
because this idea of wisdom is knowing what to do in any given situation. That's what depth of insight means. This is the only time in the New Testament this word is used, depth of insight. And that's what it is, knowing what to do in any given situation. And that is a really tall order because there's a lot of gray in life, is there not? There is a whole lot of gray. Now, there are some of us by personality, I'm actually one of those who tends to divide life into black and white and the older I get, and I would like to think the more godly I get and the wiser I get, I realize there's a lot of gray. And therefore, wisdom required to navigate that gray. Let's just talk about what we believe about God. This is a grid that Gary Brashears has developed um, and that we have available to you. It's actually written up in the back there if you want to grab a copy off of this, but off of, off of this sermon this morning, but what does it mean when we say this is true about God? Well, there's a number of things that are absolutely true, non-negotiable, explicit, not really room for a range of opinion. This is what God's word clearly, explicitly says. And let's put this in the framework of baptism because we're going to be baptizing folks here in just a couple weeks. So let's just talk about how this works with baptism. These are die for values. These are truths that are absolutely explicitly true in, in Scripture, and one of those is baptism. Jesus' last recorded words in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. What comes next? Baptizing them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism was so closely associated to believing in the first century that sometimes it looks like they're synonymous. They're mentioned in the same sentence. Sometimes they're right next to each other. For instance, as you read through the book of Acts, when someone chose to become a believer, a Jesus follower, the next thing they did was, where's the nearest water? So we can baptize them. To show that they have been saved. Not to save them, but to show they have been saved from their brokenness to sins and have stepped into new life and have been changed from the inside out through Jesus. Baptism is a die-for value. It is a command. It is something God wants for us in, in our lives when we choose to follow him. But what about who we baptize? Because there are some folks who believe that we should be baptizing infants, baptizing babies, because baptism shows membership in the family of God. It also, in some circles, is believed to really start that process of moving someone towards salvation. So if that's true, then we should be baptizing infants. Well, we don't believe that. We don't believe Scripture teaches that. And again, I'm not necessarily trying to persuade you, but every example of baptism that we have, explicit example of baptism, is what we call believer baptism. It's someone who has chosen to follow Jesus. We don't see babies being baptized in Scripture. There are folks who would argue that, and that's okay. But what I mean by a divide-for issue with this is, as, as a pastor, I could not serve in a church that baptized babies. I simply don't believe Scripture teaches that. So therefore, I couldn't, I couldn't serve in a, a church like that. And there are those issues where we choose legitimately to divide doesn't mean we're not unified. We just choose to not align on that issue. Then there's those issues we debate for, like mode of baptism. Is it okay to pour water on someone to baptize them? To, to sprinkle them with water? Well, there are different camps of belief in that too. Again, every explicit example of baptism we see in Scripture and the word literally means immersion 
or to dip or to, or to plunge. But as a pastor, I can tell you, I have baptized folks without dunking them. The gentleman who was about to die and who had never been baptized and who couldn't be immersed, so we did pour water on him as an act of baptism so that he could be obedient to the command to be baptized. So really, for us as a church, unless we have good reason, if you want to get baptized, we're dunking you, baby. We're going to immerse you. But if you can't, it's not a, understand, it's not a die for value where we'll say, well, we're not baptizing you. Was I going to deny this man who's dying baptism because he couldn't be dunked? So you see where this is going right? And then there's those issues of decide for. Well, who gets to baptize? Is it just the other pastors and myself? At Grace, we believe that if someone has had a, a defining role in your life, the person who got to lead you to Jesus or someone who's discipled you or someone who's very meaningful to you, we will encourage you to have them baptize you. I mean, we will be there to show that we as a church stand behind this and, and believe in baptism, but there are other churches where that's not true. They, they believe the pastors slash elders, they are the only ones who can baptize. Well, you see where this is going? And there may be movement among, among the divide, debate, decide for. There may be some things that you would say, no, that's a, that's a debate for for me. Or, okay, but do you understand wisdom required, right? Sometimes it's really difficult to determine and discern what is best. But so much of life is about good, better, and best. Wisdom required to navigate the gray and to figure out what is best. And that's exactly what Paul prays for them. But he also prays for this reality of life change. The gospel is all about life change. And look at the, the power of these words he uses here. That you can discern what's best, you can live wisely, but be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, the, the return of, of Jesus. And the idea of purity is really your inner character. Blameless is about your outer character. More specifically, purity is about sincerity. It's about no hidden motives. It's about authentic. By way of example, the false teachers who we'll read about here in just a number of weeks, they, they weren't being pure. They were preaching the gospel, but they were doing it to try to create more trouble for Paul. That, that's kind of a counterexample of, of purity, but it's, it's about authenticity. You know, one of the things that you value as a church family, because we constantly hear about it, which is wonderful, it is a high value for us, is when we have someone come up here and share their life you always respond to the authenticity of that. And that's so meaningful to us, and it should be. Because that's, that's part of what it means to, to live a pure life. We're, we're drawn to that. And blamelessness is about not giving offense, not offending others. It's about living a life of integrity and a, 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 being above reproach. When I think of blameless, I think of Job in the Old Testament. He was described as upright and blameless. doesn't mean he was perfect. We're not made complete in that idea of perfection until Jesus comes back, until we're with him someday. But is it possible to be pure and blameless now? Or is that just something for pastors and missionaries and 
men and women in the Bible that we read about. Do you realize it's possible for you to be pure and blameless? Because the tense of how this is written is describing something that's ongoing. Perfect? No. You're not going to be perfect till you're with Jesus. But is it possible to live a pure and blameless life? It really is. Yeah, you can. Because this is about looking forward, not looking back. Because there are too many of us who define our lives and define ourselves by our past, by our brokenness, by our sin. And that is not who you are. This is all about looking forward to what God will do, but it's also about what God's doing now in you. Too many of us are wearing what the Bible would call old clothes, old, broken, selfish attitudes, old, broken, selfish ways of relating. When we don't have to live that way, Man, you want to talk about a powerful prayer to pray for yourself and to pray for others, that you would be pure and blameless. This isn't an out there someday kind of thing. This is a right now kind of thing. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, living each day for Jesus, making Jesus the foundation of your life is about life change. It's about changing to become more like him. You can do this. Because Jesus said you could. Do you remember John 15? I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Skip down just a little bit. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. God's glory and our fruitfulness are constantly connected together. God is glorified. God is pleased. It brings joy and blessing to God for us to become more and more like him. Fruitfulness is always the result of following Jesus. It is the proof that we know and love Jesus. It's tangible. It's real. And that's why we need to ask for it. Because if you and I act without praying, at the end of the day, that is arrogant. Because what we're saying to God is, I got this, I can do this without you, thank you very much. And how much of our lives are spent in prayerlessness. Man, too much of my life. I need Jesus every day to be who he calls me to be, and I can be who he calls me to be and bear fruit. But I gotta ask him for it and believe him for it and trust him for it and live it out. On the other side of things, prayer without action, quite frankly, is hypocrisy. To say we love Jesus, to ask for the love that he gives to us and then to do nothing with it, it's hypocrisy. You can't say you wanna live like Jesus and then do nothing. And that's why we pray. We ask for maturity. We ask for, for life change. Because at the end of the day, our deepest needs, or to put it in biblical language, our deepest thirst is only gonna be met 
through Jesus. Not adding Jesus to our lives, but making him the foundation of our life. When you sent Jamie and I to Israel a couple years ago now, one of the many memories that's etched in my mind is when we were in Jericho and we had seen you know, a number of things in Jericho. It was the end of the day. So we were going to our hotel where we were just going to stay one night. And we got to stay in some amazing settings. But this was the most beautiful hotel I've ever been in in my life. I mean, it was amazing. It was marble, everything. And it was, it was, it was just beautiful. Truly amazing. A thousand yards away, here is a Bedouin tent with a camel tied to it. I mean, just like you'd see out of the movies. It's hot, it's arid. Here's this opulent, beautiful hotel, and then this Bedouin nomadic sheep herder with this little tent and a camel hitched to it. It was, it was like the collision of two worlds, two realities. It's like, wow, I can't, I can't make sense out of this. This is amazing to me. There's a story that I recently heard about Lawrence of Arabia who as part of his travels and life experiences took a group of Bedouin sheep herders and took them back to London with him and put them up in a hotel. And it was the first time any of them had ever been around running water. They had never seen it before. You got water out of a well with a bucket. And now they were in this place and all you had to do was turn on this this one thing called a faucet and you could have as much water as you wanted instantly. And they spent their time turning these faucets on and off, hours, just watching this water. Lawrence of Arabia couldn't believe it. And after their stay there, when they were getting ready to depart and they were all gathering together, the hospital staff came down in a hurry and they, they, they got a hold of Lawrence before they walked out of the hotel and they said, you've got to come see this. And they took him up to one of the rooms they had been in and all the faucet handles were missing. <laughs> all of them. And they began to search their bags and they found these faucet handles in their bags. Because the Bedouins mistakenly understood that the source of water was a faucet handle. How often do we look to quench our deepest thirsts with empty faucet handles in our lives? What other people think about us? What other people say about us? What we accomplish? How much money we have in the bank? the status of our health. Do I need to go on? Jesus calls us once again to come to himself as the source of living water. We are thirsty people. And he calls us back to get our deepest thirst quenched through him. And the cross the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus underscores and reminds us of this reality that he is the source of life and he is the one who can quench our deepest thirst like nothing else and no one else. So this morning as our worship team comes, we are going to celebrate communion together. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.